Welcome to Cultural Connections Lab. I'm your host, Dr. Kelly Forbes. We are here to talk with educational professionals around the world to impact and influence the education system as we focus on cultural connections and the education of multilingual, diverse students. We're excited to have you join us today, and we sincerely hope that you enjoy the show. Are you ready to take your school district to new heights? Introducing Educators, the leading software as a service platform for Title III and multilingual support in education. At Educators, we understand the importance of equitable education and empowering multilingual learners to thrive in today's classrooms. Our cutting edge technology provides school districts across the nation with the tools they need to enhance language acquisition, foster inclusivity, and improve academic outcomes. With seamless implementation and comprehensive support, EduSkills ensures a smooth transition for your district, empowering educators to provide targeted instruction and personalized support. So why wait? Unlock the potential of your school district today with EduSkills. Visit our website at EduSkillsLLC.com or call us now at 405-879-9898 to schedule a demo. EduSkills. Transforming education, one student at a time. Welcome to another episode of Cultural Connections Lab with myself, your host, Dr. Kelly Forbes. Um, I'm so excited to be with two of my all-time heroes in the field of bilingual and multilingual education. Here I have with me Drs. Thomas and as well Dr. Collier. Dr. Regina Collier is Professor Emerita of Bilingual Multicultural ESL Education at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, located in the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. She is best known for her work with senior researcher Dr. Wayne Thomas on school effectiveness for linguistically and culturally diverse students, working with many school districts in all regions of the U.S. since 1985. Spotlighted by the national and international media, their award-winning national research studies have had a substantial impact on school policies throughout the world. Since 1988, Drs. Thomas and Collier have been regularly interviewed by the popular media, Cultural Connections Lab being one, <laughs> with 215 published newspaper articles and interviews on television and radio in the U.S. and abroad, reporting on their research findings. Drs. Collier and Thomas have given 268-plus keynote speeches and 530-plus presentations at international, national, and state conferences. They have also conducted education leadership training for superintendents, principals, and education policymakers in 33 U.S. states and 16 different countries. Drs. Collier and Thomas are authors of five books that summarize all their research, Educating English Learners for a Transformed World, Dual Language Education for a Transformed World, Creating Dual Language Schools for a Transformed World Administrators Speak with 24 other collaborative authors, Why Dual Language Schooling and Transforming Secondary Education, Middle and High School Dual Language Programs with 19 collaborative authors. All five books in this series are published in print and electronic form by Dual Language Education of New Mexico, Fuente Press, a shout out to them. These books present a readable synthesis of research in our field written for all educators and policymakers, including an overview of the Thomas and Collier research findings with their research figures for staff developers to use. 
The first, second, and fourth books have been translated into Spanish and are available in electronic form. In addition, Dr. Collier has 84 other publications in the field of language education. In 1989, Dr. Collier received the Distinguished Faculty Award from George Mason University for Excellence in Teaching, Scholarship, and Service. Proficient in Espanol, Spanish, and English, having lived in Central America during part of her childhood, she has served the field of bilingual ESL education for 53 years as parent, teacher, researcher, teacher educator, and doctoral mentor. In 2005 to 2006, Drs. Collier and Thomas served as visiting scholars at the University of Texas El Paso, the University of Texas Pan America, and now the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, and Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. Our other guest with us, Dr. Wayne Thomas, is Professor Emeritus of Evaluation and Research Methodology in the Graduate School of Education at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, in the northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. His PhD training and primary professional experience are in program evaluation methodology and social science research methods. He also has extensive experience in designing large-scale databases and developing computer software for purposes of student testing, program evaluation, and educational data management. His research and publications focus on the evaluation of school effectiveness for linguistically and culturally diverse students and Title I students and the evaluation of educational technology applications. He is a former computer programmer and analyst, high school math and physics teacher, and school system central office administrator in school planning, testing, and program evaluation. He teaches doctoral courses in program evaluation, advanced quantitative research methods, and instructional technology, advises doctoral students on program evaluation and research methods issues, and directs doctoral dissertations. He has formerly served as director of the University Center for Interactive Educational Technology and as head of the Graduate Program in Instructional Technology. Since 1985, he has collaborated with Dr. Virginia Collier in work on school effectiveness for linguistically and culturally diverse students. Currently, he is a senior author with Dr. Collier of the largest studies ever conducted to investigate long-term school success for English learners. Their award-winning joint research has been utilized by many school systems in the U.S., including myself, and abroad to reform the education of linguistically and culturally diverse students and to promote school improvement for both native English speakers and English learners. You can find more information about them at www.thomasandacolier.com. We will have that link in our podcast. A big welcome and a huge thank you to Drs. Thomas and Coley Air. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's truly an honor to have you. Thank you, Thank Kelly. you so much. <laughs> Well, I am just so thrilled to be able to learn more from you and to have our listeners to be able to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, partake and engage in this conversation with us considering dual language, bilingual, multilingual education today and the role that culture plays in that. And I know that you all have a, a past and a history. I was able, I believe that the last time I actually saw you all was um, in my living room on my screen. You don't know, but we've been friends for a long time, since 2008, whenever I began my first master's degree. <laughs> That's whenever I first met you, but you hadn't met me yet. Um, and then just a, a few years ago, I believe it was maybe two years ago, you all were keynote speakers 
for the California Association for Bilingual Education. And I was able to listen to your to your keynote and, and learn a little bit about how not only you two met, but also how you met and then got into this uh, research. Um, oh, there could you share with us a little bit about that? <laughs> oh my, yeah. where do we start? <laughs> you want <laughs> well, we first met at George Mason University as brand new, freshly credentialed faculty members, assistant professors in, let's see, fall of 1980, right? Mm -hmm. Seems like a long time ago, because uh, it was a long time ago. Anyway, we first met there, and Ginger and I were, had a number of conversations about uh, what we were both interested in professionally inside and outside of faculty meetings. And so it soon became apparent to me that she was most vitally interested in issues involving English learners and students who uh, are not classified as English learners, but who come from a non-English speaking background. And uh, that was basically, it seemed to me, her entire focus. Uh, and as I've said in other contexts, I had did not have that focus. I went from uh, very monolingual central Virginia and so I didn't know what she was talking about to a large extent, although I do have, I'm an experienced educator. I work for a school district, as, as your introduction indicated. So I, I knew in general what she was talking about, but I had no familiarity at all with English learners. And my first right out of the box impression was, you know, she's, uh, he thought she's, she was, he yeah, thought she's I a little crazy. weird. <laughs> okay. I <would. laughs> yeah. I thought she was, uh, had a few screws loose, frankly. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was because I didn't really at that time at all understand the context and the situation that English learners find themselves in, in the, these United States of America. And gradually over time, she began to make a good enough case that I was actually willing to move past my initial, I don't think so, to a, um, a, a more open posture. And, in, and yeah, in, go ahead. in particular, I was just shouting out that bilingual education is the most important thing for these kids. And uh, Wayne felt, well, shouldn't they learn English first? And so he was a good old monolingual English speaker um, who'd had a lot of courses in foreign languages, but but no, no experience. Oh, yeah. I've, I've studied three mm -hmm. languages, but I have not mastered any of them really to a native speaker level, certainly. Uh, so it, it isn't that I didn't think that languages are a good idea. They are. Uh, but I really didn't understand the situation of English learners in this country. I really didn't. And she, of course, had lived in Central America. Her father was a professor of Central American history. And so they were very thoroughly immersed in the long and extensive cultural backgrounds of several Central American countries. I had none of that. I was, I was a, an experienced uh, American Virginia educator who had no clue about English learners. But gradually, I was able to learn. And finally, I said, all right, we need to f find out what's going on here. So let's, I don't know what the answer is. You may be right. You may be crazy, like I initially thought. But we can solve <laughs> this by analyzing data. That's what I do. That's what I specialize in. I was a data scientist before the term data science was invented. Okay, we'll put it that way. I was a data scientist in the 70s and, and in the 80s and later. Uh, now my alma mater, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, has an entire school of data science. So that's how far things have come. Nonetheless, we are back now at analyzing our first study, and I'll give you the short version. My first reaction when I saw what very advantage these students were English learners, but they were in a very advantaged English-only 
instructional context. Well-trained teachers, superior curriculum, everything you would ever want from the, you know, the enabling things that school districts put together to provide quality education. It was all there. Small for, class size. Small class size. Um, everything large, was there. Large number of Asian students in this, in this initial so, yeah. Middle class Asian students. Yeah. So we were saying, okay, if, if this let's this is a good place to find out whether a bilingual programs really matter or not. And I looked at the results, mm-hmm. and I can't tell you exactly what I said, but it was uh, this is a program <laughs> was rated G, I'm sure. Uh, but like I said, oh my, you know, inside a different word. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> so, yeah, these students are at the 19th percentile when compared to native speaker, native English speakers who are on average at the 50th percentile. And that's after they've been here seven, 10 years. Yeah. Even on, the more in, dis- on the test in English. Yeah. They and did even, fine in math. But even not. more disturbing, they were doing well in school when it, mm-hmm. as measured by assessed by their All grades. All A's on their report cards. And I'm the going, teachers loved them. How can this be? And then I, the realization hit me. I said it again. Oh, my. This is true throughout the United States in all 50 states, isn't it? Yes, it is. And 8 million student records later, (laughs) uh, we have shown that in in data set after data set. Yeah. But that official, I mean, that uh, initial study, the results of that really focused my attention on, oh, She's not crazy at all. In fact, if anything, she has understated the case. And we have we had a hundred and what eighty thousand students in that first data set. Mm-hmm. It, this was not a study of twelve kids over here in the corner somewhere. Okay, this is a big school district right. nationwide, uh, one of the, one of the largest school districts in the country. On I think number ten at that time, and so it was a lot of oh my, oh. <laughs> Oh my, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and since so then, then I got him committed to our field. Woohoo! Yeah. Well, yeah. Way to go. You want him over. <laughs> anyway, yes, I, I did essentially decide that this group of English learners is greatly in need, it's greatly underfunded. It, uh, it's a very large group currently, and we can say, note in passing that there are now 10% of American students in all the space, mm-hmm. roughly. And they are not only that, they are the fastest growing group in U.S. schools. Okay, so they're already yes. in a major presence in our schools. In a state like California, it's even more than, than 10%. More like 50%. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the nationwide average, 10%. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but 20% of American students, even in a state like Virginia and state, may I say it, in Oklahoma, uh, are hearing a language and speaking another language other than English at home. That's where we are in 2023. That's a group that cannot, should not be ignored. In fact, you, the states ignore this group and serve them, le- you know, not fully at their peril. If you want to have your mm-hmm. statewide programs, your statewide test scores, you cannot ignore this group. You need to knock yourselves out as a state and doing what's really most effective for that group. And the shortcut to that is mm-hmm. we have made, I think, conclusive findings that dual language programs are the most powerful thing you can do. English only does not work at all. It works, and but it's it, only half it's, or at best well, half as effective. It's going to get them to half um, closing the achievement gap, but yeah. not all. And and the kids are, are um, 
the kids who are graduating from bilingual dual language programs are outscoring the kids who are monolingual native English speakers. Yes, they are. That's really an impressive statistic. So becoming <clears throat> bilingual, developing your, your, your primary language, your native language, and adding English to that is a powerful tool yeah. for being prepared for the 21st century. So just to we are uh, indicate uh, we are inclined towards abusing ourselves professionally, so to speak. We actually analyzed every uh, data from all the students in the state of North Carolina, Ginger's, which she considers her home state. Uh, they asked us to do that. Uh, they, they said, Lane, Ginger, come on down here. We need to have you to you know look at our data. And we did. And that's where 5 million student records came from, because there were 1.1 million students in each of five years uh, consecutively. And, and everything the, we've ever looked at has only confirmed that original study back in the late 80s, whenever, whatever year that yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. And, and the data from North Carolina is powerful because um, the governor and the state board committed to doing dual language in every single school district in the state, which astonished me as a kid growing up in what was then a very discriminatory context, but now they welcome Latinos and, and other groups in there, and they have a Cherokee school um, in Western North Carolina, Cherokee English. Yeah, so it's a, it's a total turnaround and very exciting. Um, they're one of five states that require every school district to do dual language schooling in at least one school, if not more. So there, and fast forward to the present era, we've been saying these things, at least with the initial study in the late 80s, we've been saying them with increasingly focused and sometimes assertive voices as each new data set was analyzed, each new large data set. But people really started to listen around the turn of this beginning of the 21st century. Yeah, things uh, are changing. Things finally have really started to US. change. Moms and dads walking down the street will now walk up to you and say, I want my child in a dual language program. And we're talking about English yes. learner parents as well as native English speaker parents, because it's good for those kids, too. I want my child in a dual language program. What are you in the school district going to do about it? Do it now. I mean, they were getting that kind of demand. And the basis for that demand started with our research. But I, we don't claim total all results here. We've had a lot of confirmatory studies from very large and very uh, knowledgeable uh, researchers since our major works in the late 80s and up to about 2002. Since 2002, other researchers have grabbed hold of this and have really run with it. And they're now, there's absolutely no doubt in the research community whatsoever. And I speak as a member of that community. If you mm -hmm. are think that English only is the best way to go for English learners, you haven't been looking at the research at all, and you're really out of it. Exactly. Okay? I mean, I hate to say it that way because it sounds like I'm in your face, and I'm not. I'm, I want you, all of you, you know, everybody listening, I want you to look at what the research is actually saying. And if you don't feel that you can read the original research, then read some good uh, summary articles, uh, uh, self, I would say, you know, in, so, in our own self-interest, read our books. We knocked ourselves out to try to put all of this in, in five books. And so, you know, if you don't read that, then read someone else's. You know, I, we're not here to sell books. We're here to, to point you folks towards the data and what the data is saying. And it's for the good of the United States of America, just like our current U.S. 
secretary of the U.S. Department of Education, is not only a former administrator, but a graduate, I understand, of dual, dual language, language programs. Yeah. Uh, and he yes. understands. He's the first government official at the federal level that high that I know of who really gets it. And so uh, we hope that we can we can take this and run with it before you and I decide to fade into the sunset or whatever, you know. Uh, so it's, it's a powerful movement. There are now almost 5,000 dual language programs in U.S. school districts, uh, according to our friends at duallanguageschools.org. And it's growing every day. The school districts are looking at their own data as well as we're working with school districts now who are we're looking over their shoulders saying, we're going to help you analyze your data. I'm not necessarily volunteering to analyze any more data. I've done my part there. But, uh, <laughs> and so, but, but if you want me to look over us, look over your shoulder, we'll help you. And we've done a couple of those recently. And the results keep coming out the same. They confirm our initial findings. 25 years ago, and all of the findings of other researchers who have also come along since then. It's really tight. I mean, there's there's no basic argument with this. If you don't think this is the, the, the truth, you're not looking at the data. You're looking at politics. You're looking at bias. You're looking at other stuff other than what the data says. The, the database conclusions are airtight. The, the school districts that we've been working with recently have been doing dual language for a long time now, and they're looking at uh, kids who are um, graduated from high school and what are they doing now. And they're, they're finding that the graduates of dual language are just empowered. They are, they are so excited about life and they're ready to do many different things and they're, they're uh, they're doing great. <laughs> when we talk to state legislatures, and we've done that a number of times over the years, they really they may look like they're initially bored, but when you tell them the high school graduation rate for English learners who came from a dual language program approaches ninety five percent. Yeah. You know what it was before dual language? About fifty percent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Half. Half. Yeah. yeah. And so. We did that in Oregon. I mean, you could visibly see legislators go like this in their chair. They sat up and started paying attention. Even if they were bored before that, they weren't bored after that because they've been working on that as a statewide goal for years. And a lot of the other states are now Washington, California. Uh, there have been other states who have, have been focusing on dual language for a while. They get it now. They're, if they don't get it fully, they get it at least enough to take action. And that's what really matters. This has all started to happen after 20, after uh, the year 2000. We've noticed it really picking up steam in the last decade. There was a lot of bilingual schooling for English learners uh, before then, but, but it was more remedial in focus. And uh, the enrichment models have really taken off now where kids are, you know, we keep on preaching. <laughs> um, that dual yeah. language is just the mainstream. It's for everybody, you know. It is. Yeah. It is. Uh, it is just plain old regular schooling. It just happens to be through two languages. So you're receiving all your math, your science, your social studies, and and language arts through not just one, but two languages. That's powerful, really powerful. Now, I don't know whether anybody in Oklahoma ever tells you this or not, but we hear from other states, of course, that from time to time that, well, these kids need to learn English first, and then we'll let them enter these dual language programs. No, we're, don't do that. <laughs> we're here to tell you, if you want your child, your English learner or your native English speaker to acquire superior English, 
We can show you 8 million reasons why the way to do that is through dual language programs. Mm -hmm. And see, and that's, that's kind of counterintuitive because you look at the test scores and you say, you're telling me that native English speakers in dual language programs outscore native English speakers in the regular curriculum? Yes, they do. You're telling me that mm -hmm. English learners in dual language programs way outscore English learners in traditional English only programs? Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you if all you really care mm -hmm. about is I want these kids to learn English, you want them in a dual language program just as fast as you can get them there, mm -hmm. because that's what's going to do them the most good and be most efficient at bringing them forward the way you want them to go in their mastery of the curriculum and their mastery of English. So more time in English is not the key. No, no, no. Instead, it's cognitive development and stimulating exciting schooling and um, and the magic happens. We actually did a little analysis on this. You More English is helpful up to about the point where there's 50% of the instruction in English and 50% in the other language. Where have you heard that? That's a dual language program, or at least a 50-50 mm -hmm. Okay. Beyond 50% in English, the, there's actually diminishing returns. Okay, achievement goes down the more you pound on English. The, the like, more, the more time in the English. More time, yeah. yeah. And so our our good friends in Arizona, hmm. what can hmm. I say? They, they're still <laughs> our good friends, but and I know not. This is the the policymakers there simply really need to wake up and smell the coffee, as Ann Landers used to say. So yeah. sad. Yeah. What's happening to the kids there? Oh. I'll date myself with that saying. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you, you know what, but you are incredibly right. And I really appreciate you being so frank about that because it gets to the point where whenever we know better, we have to do better. And we can't keep on having a conversation around things that we know are not the best practices or the best pedagogical practices of that, um, nor are they even culturally responsive for our emergent bilingual and multilingual students, as well as, you know, people like me. I was, you know, a, a little Kelly from Tulsa, Oklahoma that had no reason to ever learn another language or anything. And it was, um, it wasn't through a dual language program, but it was in high school and had an amazing Spanish teacher, Senora Atticums, who really got me interested in the language and the culture. And that changed my life forever. And so now you fast forward to where I am today and having looked at research from so many different researchers in our field, and truly, especially the, the two of you, I have all of your books, I read them, I look at your website, I look at your publications. Um, the, the, the infamous uh, graph is, is in presentations all the time and discussed everywhere. Um, but it's true, though, you know, the more that we understand the research and what language acquisition looks like in multiple different languages, really understanding that cultural responsiveness as well and how it helps everyone be, with our cognitive pegs that we have on our brain. And we hang information on these pegs. Right. And so it's the quality and the quantity of education in that first native language that really helps us with that acquisition in English and having that cognitive academic language proficiency in both languages, which is so important. Um, and you all had to go ahead. I thought you were going to say something. I was going to point out that the major impact from dual language programs, our research would indicate there are actually two of them, but the biggie is cognitive development. Yeah. Learning through two languages, mm -hmm. a neuroscientist will tell you, is more cognitively stimulating than learning through one language. And it, you can pick the languages, okay? That's why native English speakers do better in dual language instructed in two languages than they do in only being instructed in English. Uh, cognitive stimulation is the biggie. 
that people tend to focus on, well, they're learning another language, and yeah, and they're being more proficient in their second language than Wayne is from years of studying French and German and other languages like that. Yeah, okay, that's true, but it goes beyond proficiency. Cognitive stimulation helps everything. It helps your mastery of the curriculum. It helps your mastery of English. It helps your mastery of all the things that you want to master. It's a, a multiplier, as the Defense Department would call it, a, a multiplier of things you're already trying to do. And the second major impact of dual language programs, it doesn't get nearly enough um, focus, I think, and it's related to your point about uh, English dual language programs being stimulating, is that the students in dual language, we, when we studied this uh, by working with teachers and observing classrooms, the students in dual language programs where they use enrichment instructional strategies rather than dumbed down and re remedial strategies, okay, mm -hmm. the students in those programs are much more engaged with the instruction, the good teaching that is going on in classrooms. We have good teaching going on out there, but the kids are bored out of their minds in remedial <laughs> English learners. Okay, they're sitting there looking out the window and, and holding their heads and dual language programs are stimulating. They are interesting. So you've got something that's one, enormously helping them over time to develop their cognitive skills, their cognitive development is greatly enhanced. And number two, it's helping them focus on what's going on in the classroom rather than looking out the window. That's an unbeatable combination. And it's almost unique to dual language. I'm sure there are some other bilingual programs who can manage that. I'm not saying that you'd never see that anywhere else. And there are probably some ESL programs really well implemented who can do some of that as well. But dual language excels at those two biggies. So and it's way more than just language proficiency, and it's way more than just your, uh, you know, the things that people tend to talk about in newspaper articles. And ESL is a part of dual yes, language. It it's is. not something that's it's uh, not either it's, or. It's not, you know, it's not like you don't do ESL. ESL English as a second language is a crucial part of the whole the whole program. After um, all, you want at least 50% of their instruction to be in English, right? Yep. And that's how you do it, yep, yep. ESL. So I wanted to bring in another aspect of the cognitive development that takes place, and this is the cultural, the cross-cultural aspect of it um, for the kids. This is, is part of her area of specialization. I'm going to recede here. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and I'm, I'm going to use this as an example um, a variety of... Um, Indian contexts, um, Indian may not from in not the country of India, but India Indian within the United States, American Indian Native groups. peoples. That, that, yes. Yeah, um, and so um, indigenous groups in Alaska, we visited quite a bit. That, that was one of our research sites, um, and we worked with the Yupik and the uh, Klingit, and well, mainly those two groups anyway. Um, and um, the Yupik taught us so much. They, when when we first went there, they they didn't. We knew we were supposed to speak, but they didn't let us speak. They said we have to teach you first. And the first week we were there, they taught us. And, um, and there was a lot to learn too. Yes. <laughs> and so you, you step out of Western perspectives, Western cultural perspectives, when you when you just immerse yourself in whatever the context, the cultural context is that you're in. And um, what they showed us was that teaching is best done by, by doing it, by, by learning through doing, 
and and that's a very important concept in a lot of indigenous mm-hmm. cultures that um, the elders teach the children not by talking away about something, but by actually doing it physically. And so um, in um, in the Yupik context, for example, um, they had um, they were in a section where if by chance the planes stopped coming for some reason, whatever climate, uh, you know, dangerous situation Earth got in and they could no longer receive goods through being through flights that got there. They had to survive and they knew that they couldn't survive if they didn't keep the knowledge of their ancestors. And you teach that knowledge through the native language because English doesn't have all the different words that that are within their environmental context. And so they um, they found that even the teachers, the bilingual teachers, Yupik um, speaking bilingual teachers who were in their 50s had lost how to cut the salmon in just the right way so that um, it would be preserved over the whole winter and they had enough food to eat. I want you to know that I still remember how to do that too. <laughs> yeah, they took us to fish. They took us to fish camps and taught us how to cut the salmon the right way, so that they could smoke it and and preserve it, and it would and it would it wouldn't get spoiled over the winter. So the seventy and eighty year old elders were teaching the bilingual teachers how to do this, so that they could teach the children, so that they could relearn what they know they need and if it for survival you know so that things kind of like cultural that knowledge is how, still priceless how to how to sew um the seam so that there would be no air that would get into a pocket of their clothing and then they would get um their skin uh, completely destroyed by the cold and things like that i mean it's just it went on and on I and mean, they they changed their whole curriculum wow. to reflect the cultural needs that they had within their community. And many of those same issues mm-hmm. transport well to other indigenous groups within mm-hmm. the continental U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, groups here in Virginia that have been here for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The medicinal knowledge, the med- yes, knowing the plants the uh, of that region and how to, how to grow them and take care of them and right. nour- nourish them. And on and on. I mean, every aspect of life Um you have to know your environment and how to survive there. And the indigenous groups have known that and, and must pass it on to their children uh, just to, uh, to live. And so all that is just so important uh, to connect to our cultural roots, our ancestral roots. And so your point is dual language instruction naturally offers an opportunity to capture this cultural knowledge in the mm-hmm. context of... Yeah ordinary instruction yeah. in curriculum oriented instruction in two languages. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's true for every dual language program, um, you know, to inter inter include in the curriculum, everything that has to do with the, the cross cultural issues that, that are really important across math, science, social studies, not just, you know, a Western mm-hmm. curriculum this teaching all this stuff that is not relevant, necessarily relevant to. So for the rest context. of us who are not, so are not members of a, of a cultural group like that, uh, I would say that even for someone like me, my ancestors are Scottish, Scots-Irish, 
They came to Virginia in, what did we say last night, 1635, 1635. the first one, the year 1635, and the rest of them showed up up to about 1730. So between 1635 and 1730, all the folks who were on both sides of my family were already here in Virginia. Remember, Virginia is the oldest of the English colonies. So, uh, Mm -hmm. but do I have any sense of my cultural heritage? Mm -mm. No, I don't. And I discovered that right in my face when the first time we visited Scotland and Ireland. I didn't know the music. I didn't know the cultural customs. I didn't know anything. I was devoid of all of that stuff. And I really felt the loss for the first time, the cultural loss of growing up in central Virginia, even though genetically I am very much related to those folks in places like Oban and the Isle of Mull and whatever, uh, I don't share their culture anymore. And that's a great loss, tragic loss for me and for all of my family that I hadn't even realized I had already experienced. Heritage is very, very important. So for Vietnamese students whose families came here in the 70s after the Vietnam War, for other such you don't have to have been here since 1635 to experience this. Uh, it's it's something that I think all Americans can potentially benefit from more information, more identification with their cultural backgrounds. We all have one. I think it's really exciting that Vietnamese parents now of third generation immigrants are demanding dual language programs in Vietnamese all across the Western states. But especially now. in Washington state. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, but California, too. Yeah, California, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so much so that dual language leaders who have gotten good, solid <clears throat> Spanish-English programs in place are having to meet together and say, okay, what do we do now to get the Vietnamese oh, teachers? And uh, the, first, the, the, the first groups that came, you know, like when the boat people came uh, in the 1970s uh, from Vietnam, uh, said, we don't want anything to do with our with with Vietnam. We don't ever, you know, they they had suffered through We're so now. much. We're Americans, you yeah. know. But the third generation is now saying, oh, we want to reconnect. We want our kids to connect. We want them to know how to speak Vietnamese and to connect to our culture and to keep those roots, that heritage. We are Americans, but we want to be yeah. informed about our yeah. culture. I think all of us have a right to that. Right. So I think so for sure. I have, a, I have a salsa partner from Colombia, Palmera Valle, Colombia. Se llama Marti. And she is always so proud um, to represent Colombia. And she's always joking that she's a, que me, ha, me adoptó como colombiano también. Like she's adopting me also to be Colombian <laughs> with her. And so I love to get to share that culture, but it really does enrich not just, you know, her own life, getting to share her passion of her culture and where she's from and the same for our students, but it enriches my life. Yeah. I get to learn so much more and to have that global citizen mindset and to understand that, that what happens right here on this side of the planet affects this side of the planet as well on the complete opposite side, having that whole understanding. Exactly. Um, why, why? I mean, I've done some obvious, a lot of research on this, but according to you two, why, and why is that so important um, to have that connection to culture? Like, why did why do you feel, um, for example, Dr. Thomas, like, why do you feel that you've missed out on something? I, I have some experience in that from my grandmother's mm-hmm. side, having a, a German ancestry and background and her having um, being raised with German around in the German culture, but having that have faded out. 
Um, my grandfather just celebrated his 91st birthday. My grandmother will celebrate her 91st in December. So we've been having some conversations about this. And so being born in 1932 and having access to your grandmother speaking German and sharing that German yeah. heritage and culture with you to now today, not having any of it anymore. Right. We've had some conversations about that, but what is that importance and that connection um, to you, Dr. Thomas, specifically that you were just speaking of? <laughs> There was an emotion and a feeling that obviously you had to have had. Ginger's probably more qualified to talk about this, but I'll say that for me, I didn't really have a good notion of where I came from. I knew about my parents and my grandparents, but they were all English speakers. I didn't know about any of the folks who had spoken Gaelic and Gaelic and Scots and the other languages which are I'm sure a part of my my family's history. I also didn't fully understand the experiences those folks went through in the 17 and 1800s when they were still considered immigrants from somewhere else and thus mistreated. Uh, you, you remember that mm-hmm. it was the early 20th century, there was the signs in the front of the store said, no Irish need apply. Uh, the Irish were highly persecuted, uh, especially the Scots-Irish. Uh, they were even persecuted in their home country and in, in both Scotland and Ireland when they, as they moved around. So uh, those folks are the ones who came to Virginia and the Appalachians and have been here for hundreds of years. And I know and still know not enough, but I, I had, still some of them fighting each other, too. <laughs> this may explain a lot. They fought yeah. each other in the clan wars, both in, in the highlands and in the lowlands of Scotland. And they brought a lot of the stuff to Ireland and from there to the U.S., to the Appalachian areas of Virginia, North Carolina and Tennessee. A lot of stuff going on now in current events can be at least indirectly traced to those kinds of cultural influences. And people like me have been totally ignorant of that up till the very recent. I now understand where some of this stuff is coming from. When you read national news headlines about white nationalists and other such groups that you don't necessarily want to identify with, some of the roots are in those cultural roots. And I'm not saying I'm not advertising that or or promoting it at all, but I'm saying there are underlying relationships that I now appreciate more than I used to. And so what the role that dual language programs serve is to help students heal and to help the world heal because we're, we're working on, we're now very much a global society. I mean, the, the whole world is interconnected through the internet. Um, it's mm-hmm. so powerful the way that we're all connecting together. And the more that we get together um, and um, sh- and show love and respect and honor each other um, a- across cultural groups, across language groups, um, and dual language does that too because there's always a mix of kids within each class. But we're also working um, long-term on, on healing, healing the planet healing the, the, the things that have kept us apart uh, so that instead of always being thought of as that we're separate and we, we always have to um, go through pain and, and suffering and everything, we don't have to do that anymore. We, we can, right. across cultures, cultures we can honor and, and, and celebrate uh, the beautiful different ways of living life that we all have. Understanding your cultural history and background and that of others is not an anti-American thing. It should be a very pro-American thing. It's something that enhances the quality of citizenship, enhances the quality of being an American. We are a nation of immigrants. 
If you go back far enough, even the native peoples are immigrants. If you go back 20,000 years, I mean, that's, we're all, there's no native human, uh, if you go back 20,000 years, uh, occupation of North America, it was devoid of humans uh, earlier on, really early on. So we've all come here and we all need to know, uh, in, in our opinion, culturally, where we've come from, how we can better interact with each other. And the more we understand about each other's cultures, we don't have to necessarily approve of every aspect, but you understand where people are coming from and why they are motivated, some mm -hmm. of them to act the way they do, can only help reduce the enormous amount of divisiveness, which is, a current, is obvious to us all in this country right now. I'm thinking of an of an example of a classroom that we visited in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It was an eighth grade social studies class uh, taught by a teacher from Spain. <laughs> and um, the whole class was in Spanish. There were about half were native English speakers and half were native Spanish speakers, roughly. It was a big class. And they were discussing World War II. And, um, I mean, it was like a college class, university study. I thought I'd gotten it, in the wrong classroom. It was incredible <laughs> what they were talking about. And what they were doing was they had, the kids were doing most of the talking, uh, but the, the teacher was facilitating it and they were connecting to whenever they wanted to check on any uh, thing they they needed to check. They go to the internet and quick, very quickly tap, tap, tap on the computer and, and have the answer. Um, but they also had maps that they were using and they, what they were doing was they were showing how, for example, the Chinese, uh, what they, when, when an event was happening, maybe in Europe, they were showing what that was doing to the Chinese at that time. And then they were, in other words, they were going around the world and looking at, um, other perspectives from other countries of how people experienced what was going on during that time. Um, and um, it was phenomenal. And they, there was some art and some music that got brought into the, the thing and, and maps and economics. And, and this was just in one hour, <laughs> about 45 minutes, wow. you know, in a, in a eighth grade social studies bilingual class being taught all in Spanish. I just, we were just blown away. <laughs> um, but the kids, the kids were so um, just clever at, at figuring out um, how to think about it from a different point of view, instead of just only from the U.S. point of view. It was world history taught in a totally different perspective. Wow. <laughs> and that teacher really must have been able to facilitate that curiosity. Inside really of good and through that yeah I'm say through that dual language program though that's uh -huh. where we open up our minds and ourselves to be able to explore the cultures and the points of views of others exactly. which is so enriching in the classroom exactly. yeah so that's what you want to see in a really great you know dual language program yeah it's not only possible I should do that. Americans should be doing that, in our opinion. Yeah. Uh, all of us should be. Of us. I should be. You should be. Everybody mm -hmm. should know a lot more than we probably are. I share your opinion. <laughs> where we came from, and because that influences where we're going and what we want to do with uh, our lives and all of those kinds of things. That's an important part, or should be an important part of everyone's education. Yeah, It's not all about, you know, about Central American history, although that's no doubt important, but <laughs> I... 
I want to learn more about where I came from and why my family did what they did when they did it. And uh, they were instrumental uh, in the early part of the country. They fought at, at Valley Forge. They fought at, uh, at Yorktown. They did all those things that were in the Civil War. I had people on both sides of the Civil War. Uh, that's important that you know that, you know, what your family has done, what your personal history uh, has been as a result of cultural influences that came before you. Yeah, uh, I, I really can't then, say enough how important I think that and is. And then finding resolution to it, because that's what the kids, that's what we're all about is preparing leaders for the future. Um, and uh, uh, so the kids that graduate from dual language have an expanded mindset. You yes, know, they, they do. Have, they have a, a bigger picture about how to resolve some of these things that humans have not resolved for centuries. It greatly enhances their problem-solving skills, not only inside the classroom, but outside the classroom. Uh, One that's really important is the one outside the classroom, because that's where we all live most of our lives. Uh, and I, you can almost, when you go to a conference like our favorite concert, uh, conference, La Cosecha, uh, when you, you can, and they have high school students there, you can almost look and listen to them and pick, that's a dual language student. This is a dual language student. Yeah. That one, okay, it's not a dual language student, but you can tell because what the, the interest they project, the understandings they events are much more enhanced than the ones from traditionally educated students, both native English speakers and English learners. You can really tell the difference. Do your listeners know about La Cosecha? Shall we? Yes, they do. And uh, we will be at La Cosecha this year as well and presenting. I was able to speak with Leslie as well. So yeah, we're really excited about it. And our listeners, we definitely promote La Cosecha. Um, it is a, it is my one of my top favorite conferences. <laughs> able to attend and um, i'm so thankful that we get to go back you know you really hit on on what i believe to be a super important piece of this as well and i was able to uh to have the privilege to be able to study a lot of this in in my research though but you're talking about that cultural proficiency journey how it starts with you that is so important and i thank you for highlighting that in this conversation because it is true like we have to start that journey in ourselves to understand ourselves before we can start to try to understand and make sense of this world around us and whenever i'm helping school districts implement dual language education programs and having these conversations around the why behind that one of the great points that i always like to bring up is that we create an environment in this school that looks totally different from what we see on the news every day because it goes back to your point we are living the majority of our lives outside in this world and to create this, this possibility and this space for sociocultural competence and to be able to have this uh, interconnectedness between all of our cultures and not just being multilingual or multicultural, but also being at that level of wanting to learn more and becoming more curious about yeah. it as we learn more about ourselves in that process. And I think it's so important. So I really appreciate you highlighting that that's where it starts. It's with us. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you do, go ahead, Doctor? No, no, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to. I was going to ask you. You know, um, um, having known you since two thousand eight, <laughs> on this side of the screen and looking through through research, etc. But also knowing about your studies. Um, and, and not just your studies, but also your experiences in Central America, Latin America, um, and, um, and even learning a little bit about your father from your website. 
and then connecting that to to an experience that I have when it comes to just traveling and and leaving the United States and going to other countries and not to a, a, an all inclusive resort. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about going and living right. and being in someone's home and eating their meals and truly being part of that family and that culture, et cetera. I really considered what it was like um, whenever I had my newcomer class, when I first began teaching, oh. I, uh, I had a, a degree in Spanish and I was a dancing uh, dancing guy on Royal Caribbean Cruise Line and had no interest in getting into education. I was going to be a dancing bilingual veterinarian was my overall goal in life. <laughs> um, and then there was a whole different destiny that took me to where I was. I was able to start in a classroom that represented sixth through eighth graders, seven countries and eight different languages, these newcomer students. And they were my best teachers and my best professors that I ever had. And so whenever I considered what my background and my experiences were in traveling um, and then living with families and then how that impacted what was happening in the classroom, I'm sure, Dr. Collier, that your experiences outside of the United States was definitely maybe one of those catalysts to getting you into wanting to understand and learn more about how all this would work. Would I be correct in that? And if so, what was that experience yeah. like? <laughs> yeah, I, I really, um, I had um, had so many rich experiences in Central America. And this was, this was in the 1950s, so uh, 1940s and 1950s. So um, it's a time when it was very innocent. It's before, um, you know, some of the really rough stuff that's happening now because of um, so, so many things are happening now in Central, Central America that's it's so painful for me to, to watch. Um, but the, the, what I knew was very, very different. The people were so, so loving and no matter where we went um, and whatever circumstances of poverty that the people were in, they were always there to help no matter what. Um, they just they just gave and gave and gave love to us everywhere that we went. And we were driving down there uh, in, in, uh, before there were very many roads. And so my dad just loved to – he had to always – uh, <laughs> go wherever there might be a road, and we we get lost a lot, and our car broke down a lot, you know. So wherever we were, we always took a very old car so that um, they could fix it, and they would they they always did wherever we were in isolated areas. It was just so so beautiful. Um, now I'm forgetting where what what did you ask originally. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that those experiences, though, just be, having experiences outside of the United States really impacted your thought process about not just dual language education, but the role that culture plays in education. Right, right. Um, yeah, it, it, it made me, I, I really, I wanted to be a Latina. I was very angry that I had grown up Anglo. And <laughs> uh, so I kind of adopted Latino customs. I still, I still come late to meetings. Wayne hates that because... <laughs> Very <laughs> There's a cultural difference for you. <laughs> I still we we get along just fine, Dr. Collier. Everybody, a great big abrazo that's really strong, and and some people are like, oh, that's hard. You know, you're 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 giving you're hugging me too hard. Anyway, <laughs> um, but um, the interestingly, when I I became a young mother um, in my early twenties, and um, 
my uh, two kids, I didn't think about raising them bilingually. I had picked up Spanish, you know, in my childhood. And then um, it just didn't occur to me um, to do that. And we just happened to be living in Washington, D.C. when um, my uh, oldest daughter was going moving into first grade. And, um, uh, and our school was chosen as one of the first bilingual schools um, in D.C. public schools. And um, so... Um, I, my, we had the opportunity uh, to, to do that. And my daughter then said, as after she had been in, in school, Spanish English program for a while with a fabulous uh, teacher, uh, she said, mom, why didn't you raise me in Spanish? You know? And I said, I don't know. Wait, I just, Spanish and English. Yeah. Spanish and English. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I had to think hard about that and realized, oh, I missed a huge opportunity. But then both girls got um, to get access to Spanish through the school. And, um, but the, my daughter's teacher um, was a, from Chile, Eliana Roman is her name. She's, she's now deceased, but she was the most fabulous teacher I have ever met in my life. And she had been schooled in, in education classes by, um, oh dear, I'm not gonna be able to, no, no. no, um, A a woman poet who in Chile, and I can't think of her name right now, but, um, but it was all about the whole child and, and helping the children flower and, you know, and understanding, reflecting uh, what they, um, what they bring to the classroom. And, uh, and it was all hands on discovery learning, you know, and I couldn't stay out of the classroom as a parent. I just, I visited that class over and over and over again, and I finally decided this is for the whole world. We have to make sure that all classes are like this. You know, we had uh, half of the time in Spanish, half of the time in English, and uh, um, and two teachers. They were, they were teaming together, and um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to make sure that this gets to the whole world. <laughs> and so by the time I met her in 1980, this was busting out all over. Everything she said and did had to do with that particular uh, orientation, I think. Yeah, yeah. But and she didn't have their database I, if, reasons if to I believe had, that. Yeah, if I hadn't met Wayne um, and he decided to analyze some data <laughs> on this issue, um, I don't think we would have spread the, uh, to the world um, what, uh, the vision that I had from Eliana Roman, the, this blessed bilingual teacher, um, well, but, your vision was based on theory and experience yeah. and other international right. research that had come before we, you and I got together. Yeah. And yeah. then we knew how to do great big data sets, longitudinal data. And it was the, it was looking at longitudinal data where you're seeing how are the kids doing from first grade through eighth grade, you know, all the way through as long as you can. Now we have data sets from all the way through high school. Um, but um, that's where you see the power because you um, you know now that everybody knows it, it's not that it takes uh, oh poor kids they just don't do well in school nah come on it's that it takes it right. takes a long time to acquire the school curriculum through your second language and that's true for the native English speakers as well in the dual language classes so we say it takes on average around six years five 
five to seven years, uh, Jim Cummins said, and we agree it's it's an average of six years it takes to get to grade level in your second language. That's not to learn English uh, as, as a second language, but it's to get to grade level where you can show off what you know in your second language in math, science, social studies, all the tests, whatever it is, tests you're given and do as well as a native speaker of that language would do. But once you get there, then you go beyond that and you're, and you're higher in achievement than all the other kids who have yes. just gotten schooling through one language. I think one of the biggest <laughs> insights that we have brought to the field is that the field before 2000 was almost exclusively focused on short-term studies. Yeah. And it's quite possible to, take, to give kids a test that's full of fairly low-level items and then you go into the classroom and you remedially beat on those items, okay? You emphasize those items and those short-term objectives, the, the easier stuff in the curriculum, you emphasize that. And then you look at your test scores a year or two later and, okay, they've increased again because the test at that time, especially we're really only measuring the short-term objectives and the low-level uh, cognitive stuff. You can produce a short-term effect with a highly emphasized on English curriculum, but it doesn't last. And so the importance of longitudinal research is when you look beyond two, maybe three years, up to four and five years, you see those, those short-term impacts go away. And you know what? The only evidence for English-only instruction is short-term. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. All of the long-term evidence supports long-term cognitive development, long-term acquisition of the curriculum, and it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive, but we always like to tell school boards, you're not going to see results here. They're not, this is not a miracle. This is something you do over four, five, six years. You're going to have to wait that long. School board members don't want to hear that. <laughs> I know. I a lot of them in the school district, right? I tell them anyhow. <laughs> their, their term on office is two years. They want to see results in no more than two years while they're still in office before somebody throws them out. And so uh, that you have to acknowledge that this is a program that provides a little bit of, a, of, of, a, of an achievement each and every year. And the important thing is that it's cumulative. Each year builds upon the previous mm -hmm. year. Well, from the research community for years, all of the researchers were emphasizing what I used to somewhat pejoratively call rat goosing studies, where you would, uh, you know, a laboratory oriented uh, study where you run rats through a maze and you examine something for six weeks and that's it. That won't work in education. Education is a slight to moderate impact sustained over a long period of time. Anything that's not a long term study, I would re recommend to all of the viewers just don't pay any attention to that. Only look at the long term mm -hmm. studies. Education is a long-term process. They don't, the kids don't disappear after two years in school. We want them to go all the way to the end and graduate. And so we really need to get beyond the quick returns, short-term emphasis that has pervaded education for so long. And if I may say so, I think we've made a little progress in that area. People now understand that the long-term results are completely different than the short-term results. And you want to know about okay. the long-term results. Okay, so look for the long-term research. No matter who's doing it, look for the long-term research. By long-term, I mean at least four, well, five, six years. It's incredible because you two have truly paved the way for individuals like me to be able to continue in this research. 
and this longitudinal research. And so I just want to say thank you again on a personal level <laughs> for that because it's allowed me to become a better educator. And so it's really also allowed space for me to be able to understand more about asset-based pedagogy and what that looks like in that role of cultural proficiency and how dual language programs really do create an environment within the school that celebrates the identities of students. And so it's allowed me, like I said, to have really good conversations with administrators, with board members, with um, I said administrators like from the administration building cabinet, for example, and then also site-based administrators. And it's changed the conversation so much that fortunately, because of you too and your work and what you've done and what you've gifted to me without even knowing it through all of these years, is I'm able to now have conversations that um, I can really speak to and articulate the rationale why we need to have a bilingual and multilingual education and dual language programs. And here in Oklahoma, being an English-only state, um, and I'm currently the past president of OAVE, the Oklahoma Association for Bilingual Education, but we're able to be working with other school districts, and there are districts now implementing, and one just this year has begun this year in their pre-K and K starting dual language education programming. And we will be right back. Are you ready to take your K-12 multilingual programs to new heights? Look no further than the experts at Kelly B's Consulting. We're not just consultants, we're partners in education with a passion for empowering students and enriching your classrooms. At Kelly B's Consulting, we understand the unique cultural and linguistic needs of your diverse student population. Our team of experienced educators will work alongside you, tailoring strategies that transform your multilingual programs. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Visit www.kellybeesconsultingllc.com today to learn more and schedule your consultation. Kelly Bees Consulting, shaping the future of K-12 multilingual education across the nation. Your success is our commitment. Contact us now and let's start building a brighter tomorrow together. And now back to the show. No, but truly, again, just to continue what I was, I don't know how much you heard, but it's the, the, the research that you all have provided that allowed an individual like me in a place like Oklahoma and beyond, but really to be able to support the efforts in creating space in our education systems for dual language education programs. And I think that the, that the conversation that I've been able to have with other leaders in our state and, and talking about asset-based pedagogical practices and realizing that our students come with so many amazing funds of knowledge from their home, from their culture, from their language. And I always use the example. First of all, I've never gone to a job interview and they said, you know what, Kelly, we'd love to hire you, but you're bilingual. That's <laughs> never, ever happened, right? And then I always like to bring up the point that whenever I was taking the GRE for admittance into the doctoral program, I remember I was reading through one of the passages and it said something um, about to, something that said castigate. And I didn't know that word. I thought, what, what is that? I've never even heard of that word in English. And so I was sitting there and I was like, well, in the context, I think it might mean. And then it clicked in my head. I go, I right, castigate, castigar. Yeah. Like to punish, like to discipline. I was like, oh, okay. And I thought, and then I had this whole epiphany moment where I thought, here I am trying to get into a doctoral program using my second language to help me with my first language so I can understand what I'm doing. And I thought that was just, it was such an awesome experience for me. And it really brought to life 
what the research shows and what the research says. Yeah. <laughs> it was it, it was incredible. Um, One of the things that happens with when we're in a lot of bilingual contexts where they're Spanish speakers and they just assume that both of us speak it and understand it and, and Wayne doesn't. Um, but every so often I'll say, did you get that? And he'll say, yeah, I followed about at least half of it. And it's because he studied <laughs> Latin. I studied when, Latin when, for uh, five years, French for three years. You know, there, a lot of stuff carries and over. And so it does. Yeah. It all helps. <laughs> yep. I love it so much. I don't know if you were able to look through any of the previous podcasts or anything, but I had the privilege of interviewing someone who I believe that you know, Dr. Elisette Moret, who is one of the co-authors that you have in Transforming Secondary Education, Middle and High School Dual Language Programs. And we were also able to have a really great conversation centered around secondary dual language programs and the graduates that spoke up and talking about their experiences, the impact and, and the advice. Yeah. Um, thinking about that and then also considering other um, types of advice that you might have for our policymakers or for our leaders, um, is there anything that you would like to share that, that, that we've learned from our graduates who have gone through this program and how that advice can be used for our educational leaders to promote and continue to promote bilingual and multilingual education? Well, the, the high school um, graduates are just astonishing. <laughs> um, and um, uh, the main thing that they're doing is they're going into really, <clears throat> really new and different fields. They're discovering that they're, they're better at figuring out a, a range of possibilities for their life. Um, you know, in terms of uh, they really know how to use the internet and they really know uh, technology and they, uh, they're just, they're just full of ideas for doing things in a different way. Um, and so, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to give, this is an anecdotal thing, but it's a, it's a good example of, of a, a young man in uh, Far San Juan Alamo, um, which mm -hmm. is a school district in Texas, right on the border with Mexico. And um, this young man had come to them in eighth grade and he was a dropout, um, a uh, into uh, criminal activity, we'll say, you know, gang gang stuff and all kinds of stuff. And um, he was a real behavior problem for their school. And uh, the the dual language director said, uh, "Come to our dual language classes," you know. And he he resisted at first, and then he he decided to join the and just see see what it was like. This kid turned around so fast in dual language um, once he caught on that he could do a lot of the stuff because it was in Spanish, which was his strongest language, and just and he could accelerate his learning. And um, he is now, let's see, what all has, is he doing? He's, he's won case. awards from the United Nations for his work at, in chemical engineering. That's incredible. And, um, I, I don't know what all, but uh, it just, you know, there's so many kids who um, are empowered from the, you know, because the schooling is, it just opens their possibilities and they know how to get what they need and they just take off and, and do incredible things. 
your listeners might be tempted to say to themselves at this point, well, that's just one case, all right? But we're here to tell you that this is not an end of one. This is an end of many hundreds, thousands of students. We've just had been so privileged to see, to visit all these school systems around the country, to see this happening over and over again, not just with this particular case in that particular district. This is a common occurrence. Students who were completely devoid of so-called success in school districts, all of a sudden discovering themselves and what they wanted to do in dual language. And within a few years, they came roaring back and really did great things to the, enough to make any former high school principal or principal trainee like me happy. Uh, and so dual language programs at the secondary school, especially when they build on successful elementary dual language programs, can be can do wonderful things for these students. We've already mentioned one: the graduation rate for English learners doubles from fifty percent to almost hundred percent. That's, in terms of effect size, that's enormous. Incredible. Incredible. That's huge. Yeah. How do you be okay with that? It's not. Automatic. I want to get this point in before we break up today because it's not automatic. You just don't change the name of the program from what you used to do to dual language. You have to actually work on implementing dual language programs in their most efficient, most effective form using research vetted strategies that have been listed by organizations like the Center for Applied Linguistics or Dual Language Education of New Mexico and other mm -hmm. such organizations. It's not an automatic process. It takes planning, it takes effort, and it takes work, and we wouldn't want to represent it any other way. And it's very challenging teaching. It's exciting teaching, but it's very challenging because yeah. you have to think about so many different ways of bringing the kids all together. And the, the higher you get in the grade levels, um, I, I truly believe that um, all of our secondary authors, the 19 who collaborated with us in writing that secondary book, uh, mm -hmm. they all say, include all English learners in the program who are, who are speakers of the, of the language, the partner language. So, for example, if you have Spanish speakers coming in who have never been to school before, they get included in the program. So I show up in grade eight and I've never been to school and you're going to put me in the program right away. Yep. Huh? And that's the yep. best thing. Yep. Okay. And um, what it does, it, it, that makes it very challenging for the teachers because then they've got an extremely heterogeneous class where you've got some kids who are right on grade level and they're in their academic work and others who have never been to school before. And, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, maybe they're proficient in oral Spanish, but not written um, and on and on. I mean, but when you include those kids and the kids teach each other, because that's one of the key um, characteristics of dual language is a lot of teaching, co-teaching that goes on between the kids. Much greater student-to-student -student interaction, much yeah. less teacher-to-student interaction. Right. Right. And um, uh, the, the mix that you get is phenomenal because you do get um, the kids who have never had these opportunities before all of a sudden accelerating their growth and making maybe two or three years progress in one year. And it's really, really worth it. And for them to be able to get schooling uh, where they get access to the subjects in the language that they are strongest in, even if it's only that they know it orally. Um, mm -hmm. that's still where they've, they've got the advantage that they need to finally take off and actually be able to. 
And let's remind folks here school. that this applies to at-risk native English speakers as well. Mm, One of yeah. the more important findings, I think, of the last yeah. quarter century, it's amazing we can say a word, say something like that. We've been working on this for more than a quarter century. But one of our most important <laughs> findings is that not only do well-implemented dual-language programs do wonderful things for English learners, they're almost equally successful for at-risk native English speakers like mm -hmm. Title I students. Mm -hmm. That was huge for the great state, not the great state of North Carolina. <laughs> uh, because they have been trying to raise their African-American achievement scores for 40 years. And all of a sudden we come along with dual language programs and it happens. And they're, those, those kids, the African-American students in dual language by eighth grade are scoring two grades ahead of their peers not in dual language. That's that phenomenal. means they come to sixth grade forming like eighth graders. Yeah. Now, that, yeah. has that has implications for secondary instruction, middle school instruction in particular. You oh, can't for sure. treat these kids like sixth graders. They're operationally eighth graders. And so you got to meet them where they are and take them even further. Uh, that's what secondary programs should be all about. Mm -hmm. And so, is there a cultural component to that, you believe? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's um, the... The teacher, the bilingual teachers are usually providing a lot of cross-cultural rich stuff where they're, they're helping yeah. the kids experience life in other contexts. And as they, as the kids move through, they get a lot, if, if the teaching staff, and usually it is pretty diverse, you know, then they get, they might get one teacher is from Colombia and another one is from Puerto Rico and another one is from Mexico and so forth. And, um, and they all, all, there are all the differences in, in how the language is, is uh, you know, the vocabulary and, and grammatical and, and the pace of the language. If they get a Caribbean Spanish speaker and it's very, very fast and it's, in <laughs> and it's very calm and polite and quiet. So on and on. And so there's so many different things where they can uh, they exchange information and think about living life in, in, in new ways. And I think, again, having that space where culture and, and, the, and our diversity is celebrated just mm -hmm. helps so much in wanting to be able to participate more. And in my experiences, teacher satisfaction is higher, attendance is higher among students. There's yeah. a low turnover, if any at all, because people feel like they belong. And yeah. a dual language program can create that sense of belonging, and there's nothing better to lower mm -hmm. one's effective filter to be able to let us acquire and learn than to feel happy, safe, and excited and celebrated in where you are and where exactly. you're learning. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Any good principal will tell you that school culture and family culture is an important aspect of any type of high quality education. We just have to broaden our scope a bit. It's not only yeah. about the culture that has predominated in the past. It's about the culture of the students who are now there in the classrooms as opposed to who was there 50 years ago. Uh, and that's an important thing to recognize. I was just thinking about a, a, a novel that I've just started reading um, by one of my favorite authors, Isabel Allende. Uh, yes. She was originally from Chile, uh, now a Californiana. <laughs> and she, um, her latest book um, is, um, <clears throat> I, I won't be able to remember the, the title, The Wind Knows My Name, something like that. Anyway, um, that would be a great book for them to use in a, in a Spanish-English uh, dual language program or even a trilingual German-Spanish-English 
because she has as the the two main characters, well, there's several main characters, but but the, the major main characters, one is German, who uh, was a kid who uh, whose parents were killed. Um, he's Jewish and his parents were killed in, in uh, Austria. And he has to, he, he manages to, uh, his mother sends him on a kinder train to England and he escapes um, before um, their whole family is killed. And um, and so this is this German kid who immigrates first to England and then eventually to the U.S. and connects with Latino families who are also in in similar circumstances where they're immigrating um, to the U.S. to El Norte from from El Salvador, and um, and she's sharing all this stuff about recent arrivals and all the things. And her books are all in both Spanish and English, so. Huh, that would be a, that would be, that she's just one of my favorite authors that that just you know uh where bilingual teachers come up with that ah let's do a, a let's do this for a while you know and and that's that's really rich because it's bringing together the narratives of okay German yes. people have experienced these things and the Salvadoran people are now experiencing them and just pulling it all together and make, thinking about the richness of, yeah. of, of coming together. That yeah. intercultural connectivity. It yeah. comes right back with that yeah. again. And yeah. that book, yes, by Isabel Allende, again, to our listeners, it's The Wind Knows My Name, or El Viento Conoce Mi Nombre, uh-huh. in Spanish. Yes, so. She writes her books in Spanish first, and then, and then they get translated into English. Yeah. <laughs> and she's a she's worldwide author. Yeah. I'd also like to point out, especially for states like Virginia and Oklahoma that are chock full of white Anglo types like me, that this is not only a politically nice thing to do. Sometimes people say, well, this is politically correct and this is all that. This is an educationally effective thing to do. Okay, this has the kinds of effects that you were beginning to enumerate, the improvement of student attitudes in school, the improvement of all kinds of enabling factors, all of which come together in higher test scores, higher achievement, higher mastery. Okay, those are important outcomes, but the cultural factors are educationally enabling. They're not just politically correct. Okay, it goes way beyond that. Sometimes people give this kind of argument short shrift because they feel well that's that's too uh, woke or whatever the current term is being abused these days uh that one is it's this is educationally effective and we can show yes. it you can tell people about that in your and we hope you will oh definitely i feel i feel like it is uh it is uh uh a moral impet um what am i trying to it's it's morally imperative yes i believe that we have a conversation yeah, around moral imperative. I believe that that is, um, I, I, I am very passionate about this topic. I strongly believe in it. I'm a huge advocate um, and keep on pushing for this type of a gifted and talented program that goes way beyond just academics, but it is changing someone's life. And whenever we're speaking about the humans that we have in front of us every single day, it's nothing about the politics anymore. This is about what we know is the best what touches people's brains, minds, hearts, and souls, and literally changing their lives for the better while giving them huge academic gains and success at the same time. But this is very much, I always say, if you want the quantitative, you have to focus on that qualitative component as well. And there's character and there's content that we're teaching, but there's also, like I said, 
humans that are in front of us every single day and to, to, to recognize them, to celebrate them, to learn from them and to be one in this together, I think it's one of the most powerful effects of a dual language education or bilingual, multilingual program. Yeah, we say in Virginia, and I ho we hope you'll uh, mention this in, in Oklahoma as well, that these programs are, uh, are such that they're very important, not only for English learners, but also for the native English speakers. And that, that's, I think, a, is a very important point. Uh, it's um, necessary to work on the implementation. It's you. One of the things we do a lot of these days is to look over school district shoulders and help them do what they call tweaking their program, <laughs> which means they've got a program in flight, but it's it's still a little wobbly and it has mm -hmm. still greater potential for improvement. So we try to help them out in doing that kind of over the shoulder looks and helping them decide what kinds of tax to take in their program improvement directions. Um, and it includes all the things we've talked about here today, but there are always ways to improve anybody's program. The one we looked at recently has been in play for what, 13, 14 years. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really experienced with it. And even they uh, would say, oh yeah, we can still do this. Here's a possibility for improving your program, making it even more efficacious and powerful than it already is. Uh, and so I, I think it's important for, even if you're not look, working with us, it's important for school districts in, in Oklahoma and Virginia and everywhere else to take note of what you are doing with English learners, pick the most powerful program, and it is dual language, uh, is. and implement it as the best <laughs> as you possibly can. No cursory versions, okay? This has to be, you have to be serious about this and, and uh, pick up all the things that should be part of a dual language program and do them well. And when you do that, great things are going to happen. We're sure of it. If you well, go, I, it's equally possible to not do very well at all. You can take a dual language program, implement it poorly, and you'll get results just like the ones you've always gotten because it's still a weak program. You aren't implementing it very well. That's an important point, too. Some people say, oh, we're going we're gonna to do a dual language program starting this week. And we go, oh, my. No, that's not right. <clears throat> Because it takes a lot of work to implement it. You have to have a lot of fidelity and understanding and background knowledge yourself and what you're doing to ensure that you are creating a, a truly solid program that is really based on what we know in the research. And so thank you again for pointing that out, because it's like you said, it's not just swapping a name on something and all of a sudden there's change that happens. You have to understand this and it's going to be it's going to be a, it's a long term goal. And there's a lot of conversations that go around that future family involvement. It's people really being all together in this. And it's doing this with the community, not mm -hmm. for anyone, but it's together with that community. That's I great. just have learned so much from you all for so many years. And I, 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 I've said it a million times, but I just can't believe that I've been able to, to, to be here and to talk to two of my, you're, you're, you're stars to me. <laughs> you are your stars and you're famous. And so this has been so wonderful. And I, I, I could talk with you all day. Is there anything, though, that you would like to leave um, uh, with our listeners? Um, any last comments, thoughts, um, ways to advocate? Anything you want to share? <laughs> oh, I, at the, always at the end, I always say, sigue la lucha. Hmm. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> um, the old... <laughs> um, being the old protester that I used to be in the sixties. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really feel like we're in a place of great change that, that there's a lot of change that's occurring now worldwide. 
um, and it's not all positive. Um, you know, there's some really rough stuff that we have to go through, but there are uh, enough young people who are stepping up now into leadership roles and trying to do new and different things. So we're um, in, in education, we're working on um, schooling those kids who are going to be our future leaders. And um, I do think that the more that we can do it through these masterful um, mixing kids together across all cultural groups, across all uh, language groups, and helping them acquire curriculum through at least more than one language, that that really is uh, the key to creating these kids who are going to change our world right now. We're, yes. we're, we're moving into that now. We're going to make it too. <laughs> I'm thankful for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. What I'd like to finish up with is the advice that I used to give, I still give school boards, but I used to give my own school board is, what we need to do here, folks, is to first find out what really works, okay? And then put our time, energy, and resources into that. And the answer is dual language really works, and let's put our time, energy, and resources into that. And then it's just a matter of folks who are really serious about educational reform confirming those assertions for themselves, and they are very confirmable. So we hope that all of your listeners will take the trouble to look at our website and to look at other uh, sources. Uh, most of the stuff on our website we wrote for parents and teachers. We didn't write it for research specialists like me, okay? They won't find a lot of stuff they don't already know there. But for the average person interested in what's good for our children, what's good for my personal children and the neighbor's children and all those, you'll find a lot of stuff on our website. We hope you'll check it out. And the, the book um, that... Uh... Uh, it's not reversed right now, but anyway, why dual language schooling is the fourth book that we wrote, and that's really yes. that's the best for school board members. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If um, you want one book, that's the best one. Yeah, for if school board members one. and administrators who are well, I'm not sure about this, you know, and parents, uh, we speak to parents too in that book. So uh, that's kind this of is, the overview. And, yes, and you you had brought that up whenever you were at Kabe. I remember that specifically. <laughs> And so whenever I have this, this is the book that I shared first with um, school leaders yeah. that we're going to be implementing the dual language program. I said, read this one first. Yeah. Uh, and then that way it'll give you a really, really good perspective. Plus, um, it's, a, it's, it's, a great, it's a great read. It definitely is. And so, again, you, you, can, find, you can find these. I have, a, I, have a quick, I have a quick question. Yeah. Do you guys have a specific link where they could go purchase the book? Yeah. Or do you sell it at multiple outlets? You, From what I know, we have, yeah. it's, it's, go, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. It's well, on our website. It's on our website. But the answer mm -hmm. is, yeah. okay, cool. D-L-E-N-M, Dual Language Education of New Mexico.org is yeah. our primary publisher, and Velasquez Press is our backup secondary publisher. We have most. They both have websites. Awesome. You can go yeah. look, look for them. Almost everything. You Thank you. Exact on. links are on our website. Yeah. <clears throat> Yes, exactly, exactly. And so just again, if you are interested, listeners, in any of the publications from Drs. Thomas and Collier, I do encourage you to go to thomasandcollier.com. They have uh, reflections from the field, publications, and other resources, as well as their contact information. And again, we will have that link, thomasandcollier.com, in the description for this podcast. And if you would like to visit the Dual Language Education of New Mexico page, it is D-L-E-N-M. Dot org, and you can find their publications there. 
as well as VelazquezPress.com, V-E-L-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z-P-R-E-S-S.com. And like I said, we will have all of those links available for you in our summary of this podcast today. Dr. Thomas and Collier, heroes of mine and in the field of bilingual, multilingual education. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for all of the things that you have done um, within the field that have impacted me on a personal level and as well as um, our overall education community. So thank you so much for, for being so dedicated in this work. And thank you for helping other people like me learn from you so we can continue this legacy in our field of education. Thank you so, so much. A big shout out to our producer, Mike Overholt. Thank you for helping thank us you. today. And a big shout out as well to our sponsor, Edge of Skills. I appreciate being here. I'm thankful for everyone. And I wish you all truly the best. Listeners, keep on being culturally proficient as much as possible. Enjoy the rest of your time and your day. And remember, we love you. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Adios. Have a place and